Oh, the joys and the frustrations that come with parenting. I, I love my two boys with all my heart, as you might notice, and I apologize for my coughing. Our whole family has been sick this week, but it brings out some just wonderful things in my boys. I, before I was leaving, my youngest Gus had a 101.5 fever, and he's just like a ball of flaming fire, and all he wants to do is just cuddle up with Daddy. He doesn't care that Daddy's in his church clothes and Daddy's going to preach. He just wants to cuddle up and gets his boogers all over me because <laughs> he just wants to be close to Daddy. It's so, it's so wonderful. And my, my oldest, Isaac, is six years old. He's, I told him this morning, and he asked when he gets to get dressed for church, and I said, you don't get to go to church because you're sick, and we don't want you to get anyone else sick. And he just starts crying. He just starts crying because he wants to go to church. And, and I just, it's just so wonderful. It, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. And, and I, I love them so much. And at the same time, sometimes they can drive Amanda and I nuts. Right? Because they're typical children and they're, they're typical sinners. And, and so when Amanda and I call them to be obedient to their parents, Sometimes even they'll, they'll do what we ask, and yet they'll still do it with the wrong attitude or for the wrong reasons. My oldest, Isaac, he is very loud and expressionative with his displeasure. There's lots of shouting and stomping and door slamming. He'll do what you ask him to do, but he'll make sure you know that that's not what he wants to do. And my youngest is not quite an expression of that way. He just growls. We will say, you need to go brush your teeth. <clears throat> yes, mama. Yes, mama. And he'll even know the right things to say. And he'll come back out later. He'll say, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're not. They, they so often do what, yes, they're supposed to do, but for the wrong reasons or with the wrong attitude so that they don't get the consequences they don't want or so that they get what they really do want. It's really amazing. Right, how quickly children can learn to, to do just what they have to do to get what they want, right? But that's not just children, is it? Isn't that us as well? That's just part of being human, right? And, and so that's our struggle, whether, whether we're looking at our kids' lives, whether we're looking at our own lives, is that we struggle and, and we, we ask the question that Paul would address here in our text this morning, what really brings about genuine obedience, genuine heart obedience, what, what brings about true freedom from our, not just our sinful actions, but our sinful attitudes and selfish desires? What produces godly fruit in our lives? Not just external conformity, but real heart change. This is what Paul addresses in Romans 7 here at the beginning of this chapter. This is what we're looking at this morning. How do we bring obedient fruit that comes from the heart? And, and what Romans says, what Paul says here, I'll tell you right up front. He says that the law is not the answer. Commands are not the answer. Rules alone are not the answer. In fact, Paul goes so far to say, we're going to see, that they are not the problem, but they are a participant in the problem. As we've seen in Romans 6, Paul rejects the notions that Christians are permitted to sin because they're no longer under the law. But now he goes even further than that to say that the answer for sin was never found in the law. The law was never the full answer for sin by itself. The commands and the rules of the law didn't, at least by themselves, bring about the freedom from sin and obedient fruit that God desires. Because here's the issue. Here's the issue of the text this morning. 
Rules without the gospel don't bear the fruit that God really wants. Commands without the gospel bring outward obedience, but not the type of, of, of gospel obedience that God desires inwardly at the heart level. This is an, there's an important difference between command-driven obedience and spirit-empowered obedience. That, 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 that there's a spirit-empowered obedience that obeys those commands, but does, does it from the inside out, does it with the right heart. Because outward obedience, it's temporary, isn't it? It's selfish. It's, it's so often sinfully motivated. But true gospel inward obedient bears, obedience bears fruit that glorifies God. Paul's argument is pretty simple to follow in, in, the, in the text this morning. In verse 1, he gives the principle. Then he illustrates the principle in verses 2 and 3. And then he applies the principle in verses 4 through 6. So let's start by looking at the principle he gives. Look at verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Who's Paul talking to here? He's talking to these brothers who know the law. So this isn't just about the law in general. This isn't just about Roman law. When Paul talks about the law in, Rome, in Romans, he's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the law of the Old Testament. So it might sound like Paul's talking to Jewish believers. At a, at a first reading, that might seem that what's going on. But that's probably not the case. Most likely, most, most commentators, most scholars agree that he is talking to the whole church here. That really, what we understand is the whole church in Rome understood the Old Testament. As we've seen throughout Romans, Paul routinely cites the Old Testament. He actually cites the Old Testament more in this letter than any of his other letters. So he assumes that his readers understand the Old Testament. More than that, more than that we know that historically, most of the early Gentile Christians had previously been what were called God-fearers. They had attended Jewish synagogues. They had followed Judaism. They never converted to Judaism, but they were in the realm of Judaism. And then many of these became followers of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking to the whole church about this Mosaic law of the Old Testament. And what is the point about the law that they should know? Well, he says that the law is binding on a person only as long as they live. In other words, it's pretty simple, right? That the Mosaic law rules over a person only while they're living. When they die, they don't have to obey the commands of the Mosaic law anymore. Some rabbis point this out, but it's really common sense, right? I mean, once you're dead, are you expected to keep obeying the law? No, it just it doesn't make any sense to have to do that. So it's just common sense understanding of the law. But notice something here. Notice how Paul describes the law. This is the key here. The law is what? What's the verb there? The law is binding, or as the Christian Standard Bible translates it, the law rules. Or if you have a King James Version, the law has dominion. This is the same verb that Paul used back in verse 9 in chapter 6. Look back at chapter 6, verse 9, where death has dominion. Same verb. Chapter 6, verse 14, sin has dominion. Is this a positive or a negative depiction of the law? It's negative, right? Just like sin rules a person before salvation, just like death rules a person before salvation, so the law rules and dominates and masters a person as long as they live. So back in Romans chapter 6, Paul was rejecting that criticism that freedom from the law means believers can remain in sin. He's saying, no, that's not the case. But Paul's going even farther here, and he's saying, no, no, no. 
It's not those who are free from the law who then are in bondage to sin, but it's actually those who are under the law who are in bondage to sin. Paul's starting to to lay the groundwork here that the law is not the solution to the problem of sin and death. In fact, looking at salvation history, the law is connected to the problem of sin and death. The law rules over one who is living, just like sin and just like death. So we start to see hints that the law is not the answer for sin, that that the law is not part of the solution. The law is actually connected to the problem. You know, maybe Paul was thinking about Old Testament Israel here. Do you remember growing up and, and, and going to Sunday school or reading your children's Bibles? My, my, my three-year-old loves just to read his picture Bible right now, and my, my older son wants to read comic books. My younger one is the picture Bible, and you know which one I'll gravitate to. It, it is the Bible, by the way. And, but you remember the stories about Old Testament Israel, that God gave Israel the Mosaic law? And did that law cause them then to turn from sin and obey God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? The whole rest of the history of Israel is just obedience, obedience, obedience. No, right? You remember those Old Testament stories over and 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 over again. Israel remained in their sinful ways. And eventually it got so bad that they ended up in exile, which the Old Testament prophets described as death. Their sin led to the death of the nation. And so God, pictured in Ezekiel, had to literally bring that nation back to life. So the law wasn't bad. The law wasn't sin. We're going to see that next week. But the law didn't produce the obedience and life that that was needed. The law resulted somehow in sin and in death. So that's the principle that Paul's giving here. Let's look how he illustrates it. Look at verses 2 and 3. Again, I, I apologize for my coughing this morning. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So Paul says for, or he's explaining, for for further explanation, he's giving this hypothetical example of a woman married to her husband. And and it it makes a lot of sense what he's saying. As long as he's alive, her husband's alive, she's bound by law to that marriage. But if he dies, then she's released from that legal obligation of marriage. And released, this word released really is implying, the way he's using it, is implying that she's released to something else. What's that something else? We see in verse 3, she's released to be free to marry someone else. You see that? that? That's going on. It's not just about being married or not. It's being released from that first marriage, being free to marry someone else. That's key there. That's what we see further explained in verse 3, right? Paul talks about that, that if she lives or joins another man. I really like that the New King James here in the New Living Translation, they see that that word, that verb is symbolizing marriage. That, that, that if she's married to another person, if she does that while her first husband is living, she is called or identified as an adulteress. But if her first husband's dead, then she is released. She's free, what, to marry someone else. You see, the point is pretty simple. Death brings freedom from the law, which gives this opportunity for a brand new relationship. That's that's what's being pictured here. Now, the point of the illustration is pretty simple. But here's where it gets difficult. How does this example relate to what Paul says in verse 1? That's where it gets a little more confusing. I don't know if you picked that up. 
Because Paul in verse 1 says that the person who dies, that person who dies, that's the one who's free from the law. So if we were going to go according to verse 1, we would expect Paul to say that she is free from the law when she dies, not when her husband dies. Right? So how does that make sense? You guys see the, the, the problem there? Paul says that when a person dies, they're free from the law. But then the example is saying when, when you know, she's free from the law when her husband dies. Now, there's some who try to explain this, this point by making this some sort of allegory where the husband is the law and the wife is the Christian or the husband is the old self and the wife is the new self or the husband is Christ's death and the wife is Christ's resurrection. And those sound all nice and spiritual. Ooh, that sounds like something maybe someone suggests in Bible study and you go, ooh, right? It sounds profound, you know? But, but is that what Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is really saying here? No, that's not what Paul's saying. These spiritual allegories, they actually miss Paul's point. They, they get so far beyond Paul that it's not really what the Holy Spirit's saying anymore. We, we need to recognize the dangers of over-spiritualizing, over-allegorizing uh, the, 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 the Bible here. Because Paul is giving a very simple illustration. It's not an, it's not an allegory. And illustrations don't always perfectly correspond on every point, Right? How many times have you tried to explain something and you've given some sort of example or illustration and someone nitpicks that little illustration and you go, no, no, that's not the point, right? It's not that little part that doesn't correspond. You're missing the main part that does correspond, right? That's what Paul's doing here. See, if you think about it, we're going to see later, it's actually impossible for Paul to give a perfect analogy to the spiritual life here. If Paul were going to give a perfect analogy, this is what he'd have to say. He'd be, have to talk about someone who's di who dies, but after they die, then they're still living and can have a new marriage relationship after they die. Well, there's other problems with that illustration, right? How many people are still living after they die? Right? We don't go marrying corpses. So, so the situation that's the situation that we have in Christ. That situation is so unique, there is no perfect analogy that can perfectly illustrate, illustrate this, per, this spiritual reality in Christ. So here's the, this point to the, the illustration here. The woman is an example of being bound in marriage. She's using negative language there. It's this bondage to the law. But death frees, this freedom, this releasing, that's positive language. It's releasing her for this new relationship that he's picturing as remarriage. There's this new remarriage that, that is possible through death. So this death to the law brings freedom for a renewed relationship, which is that relationship we have in Christ, which we'll see. Now, we're going we're gonna to see how Paul applies this to our lives, but I, I want to take a sidestep here real quick. And, and I want to, to take a step back and look at something about Paul's logic. Just the very reason why Paul can logic this way. Underlying Paul's point, Paul makes a very fundamental assumption about divorce and, and marriage. Paul, by his very argument, is assuming, at least generally speaking, that divorce and remarriage, when there has not been the death of a spouse, generally, there are exceptions we're going to see, but generally, is adultery. He would not be able to make this point, this illustration, if that was not fundamentally understood by both him, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and by the church who is receiving this letter. Paul's not giving a full theology of marriage here. He's not looking at the exceptions that Jesus gives, that there are exceptions in the cases of, of, of adultery. He doesn't look at the exceptions that Paul himself gives in 1 Corinthians on the exceptions of abandonment. But, but 
But, but what, what Paul's doing, he's, he's not contradicting those exceptions. He's saying, but those are really, really exceptions. Those are not generally the case. Paul wants to emphasize, if Paul wants to emphasize in his illustration a permanent relationship, a permanent condition, a permanent obligation, what does Paul choose as the best picture of permanency? Marriage. Because in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is clear that both the, that divorce and remarriage usually, except for those few exceptions, outside the death of a spouse, is considered adultery in God's eyes. Paul's argument makes no sense for a church that does not firmly hold to the Bible's view of marriage as one man and one woman for a lifetime. You know, in fact, I, I, I'm going to make an argument here. This is not a, I, I'm not saying this is a biblical argument because this is looking now in, 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 2000, in, in the 2000s here, looking back at our history. This is my argument, I think, but based on some biblical understandings of how sin works. I don't think that the broader church today, at least internally, would be struggling with some of the difficulties and arguments we're having with the LGBT issues if the church had been more faithful teaching about God's standard of marriage and divorce over the past few generations. See, when you start to redefine marriage as not for a lifetime, wouldn't the next step to, be to redefine marriage as something other than one man and one woman? So, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians that a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Pastor Bob pointed out that back in Romans last week, that back in Romans 1, that we see that sin never stays in one place. Sin always, when you tolerate it, it grows and grows and grows and grows into greater and greater forms of sin. So we need to understand that we do need to stand for truth. And we do need to stand for the truth of marriage as God created as, yes, one man and one woman, for a lifetime. But church, we need to also make sure we take the plank out of our eye. And we need to also stand for the truth and the conviction with conviction that marriage is one man and woman for a lifetime. We can't just stand with conviction on one part of that picture and not on the other. That means that we are going to be a church that loves God enough and loves each other enough and loves the world enough and desiring to be a faithful witness that we will go as far as lovingly discipline those who would profess Christ as members of our church and they would refuse to repent from an unbiblical pursuit of divorce. This is not punitive. This is not hateful. This is out of love. This is out of love for them. This is out of love for their spouse. This is love for, out of love for other marriages as a reminder of God's standard and call to holiness. This is love, out of love for God himself. This is out of love for our neighbors as we would desire to, to testify to them that there is something different about those of us who follow Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're struggling in your marriages, maybe you're thinking about divorce, maybe you're talking about divorce, please talk to someone. Please talk to one of our elders before, the, before you leave today. Come talk to Pastor Bob or Steve or Ken or Dave or Elias or Don. I, I, I offer myself, but I'm getting out of here so I don't infect anyone after church. But please talk to someone before you leave today because we know that marriage is not easy. We know that marriages can be very difficult, and sometimes we need help to get out of ruts and sinful patterns we get stuck in, and we need other people to come alongside us. You're not meant to deal with these things alone. You know, it's interesting. I was, I was 
looking at this recently in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3. Peter talks about being subject to every institution ordained for us. And he starts talking about these oppressive and challenging relationships. He talks about our relationship to the government, which can be challenging sometimes, yeah? But he's talking about relationship to the Roman Empire, which for a Christian was even more challenging. Then he says, he talks about, likewise, he talks about relationships of slaves to their masters. I don't know what you think about your boss, but I, I mean probably not, not comparable there, right? That's a challenging relationship, right? And then he says, likewise, you're thinking, what's the next challenging relationship he goes to? Likewise, he talks about wives and husbands. Wait a minute. Domineering Roman Empire, slaves and masters, wives and husbands. This is how Paul thinks about what it is to live in a broken world. Because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes marriage is hard. It's difficult. But divorce is not the answer. So if you're struggling with your marriage, please, please talk to someone today that can, can pray for you and walk with you before you leave today. But th that was a bit of a side point of Paul's logic. But, but let's get back here and look how Paul then applies this principle, this principle then to our lives. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul's giving a conclusion here. He's saying, likewise, or therefore. So, so similar to example, his example before, we who have placed our faith in Christ, we've died in our relationship to the law, so we're free to enter this new relationship with Christ. Right? That's, that's where he's going this whole time. That's the point. He says, we've died to the law. That's the same language he's used over the last few weeks, that we've died to sin as Christ died to death. That we're, that we're released from our bondage to sin, we're released from, from the bondage to death, we're released from, from bondage to the, now to the Mosaic law. How did we die to the sin? Look at verse 4. Through the means of the body of Christ. He, he's referring to the death of Jesus. He's referring to the death of Jesus, just not, not just a spiritual idea, not just as a religious idea, but, but he's referring to talking about a real, tangible, historical physical event of Jesus' death on the cross. How do you and I know that we have really died to sin, that we've really died to the law? Because God the Son took on him humanity, and he came to earth, and he died a horrific death on the cross in our place as our substitute for our sins. In fact, if you're visiting with us this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome we want to say that we're, we are glad that you're here visiting with us this morning. And we hope that you'll understand that when, when we as Christians, we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, and we talk about that we remember that in his death and resurrection when we celebrate communion, and as we sing about songs of, of Jesus, the, the sinless Savior who died, it's not just about one more religious option. It's not just about one more religious example, how you and I can be a better person or a more righteous person or a more religious person if we follow Jesus' example. You, know, you need to understand that Jesus died on the cross, not just to be an example. He died on the cross to give us salvation. He died on the cross because although God who created the universe and created us, the God who created us and loved us, we rebelled against that God. We rebelled against our creator. We shamed the God who loved us. And we lived for ourselves instead of honoring 
and thanking the God who created us, both in individual instances and as a lifestyle. That's what the Bible calls sin, is this rebellion against God. But Jesus died not for his sin, but for our sin, because we can never keep the law, because we kept living in our sinful rebellion. Even though we knew what was right to do, we didn't do it. So he died in our place as our substitute, bearing the punishment for our sin that we deserve in his body on the cross. And Jesus proved that he accomplished this forgiveness because he rose from the dead three days later. He rose so that we could be free from the power of sin and we could be free from the power of the law. Because salvation in Jesus is not about how much you keep the law. It's not about how good you try to be. It's about that Jesus was good enough and he kept the law for us. I've said many times, I love, as it's been said many places, that, that every other religion and philosophy in the world is about good advice. It's about what you can do to make yourself better. Here's good advice about what you can do to make yourself good enough and righteous enough and holy enough to try to make yourself acceptable to others and acceptable before God. But that's not Christianity. That's not what Jesus did in the body of his death on the cross. He did this to bring us good news. Good news is not about something that you do. Good news is about something that you hear that's been done for you. Jesus, the, this is the good news that Jesus has, has accomplished the law for us, has earned our righteousness for us, has provided a, a right standing with God for us as a freely, as a, and he gives it to us freely as a gift of grace. If we would turn from our sin and turn to, to and that's what the, the word repentance, turning from our sin and turning to Christ in faith as we trust in him as Savior and Lord. And if you would like to know more about this gift of how you can be free from sin and free from, from just trying to follow this good advice to try to be good enough, how you can accept this free gift of how Jesus was good enough for you, how you can be forgiven from your sin and reconciled to the God who loves you, we'd love to tell you more and answer your questions. In fact, we don't leave today without having your questions answered. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church Normally, I'd be at the back. I don't want to infect you, but my friend Joe Sherino, who's one of our Bible study leaders, he's volunteered. He's going to be at the back to answer anyone who has questions today if you'd like to know more about how, this free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, let's look back here in verse 4. Look at the purpose of Christ's death. Look why Christ died. He, he died so that what? So that we would no longer belong to the law, but we belong to another, to him. That this, this, this word group, this idea of belonging is, is this similar idea of being remarried. This is how the King James would translate this, so that we would be married to another, spiritually married to another, married to Jesus. But how is a person free to marry if they've died? That goes back to that illustration, right? That's the problem of the illustration, verses 2 and 3. If Paul's illustration was literal, you'd say that they died and then they married. That doesn't make sense. But here's the answer. Here's the answer to that, why that, that illustration was confusing. Because the one that we are belonging to spiritually now, the one that we are marrying spiritually, is the one who's been raised from the dead. He is the one who has resurrection life. And so he gives us 
is those dead in our sin and dying to sin and, 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 and to the law, resurrection life, so that we can have this new relationship with him. And what's the purpose of this new freedom that God gives us in Christ? Look at the end of verse four there. In order that what? In order that we may bear fruit for God. This is the answer. This is the answer to the question that I started out the sermon today. What produces good fruit in our lives? What frees us from sin? What empowers us for obedience? It's not the law. It's not just having a bunch of commands and rules that we need to obey. Instead, the answer is a new marriage, a new relationship, a new love for Jesus. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that true fruit, genuine obedience, lives that glorify God don't just come from obeying the law. Genuine obedience, true fruit comes from being in love. Do you see that? Being in love with Christ is what bears good fruit. The law is not bad. We're going to see that later in Romans 7. The law is not sinful, but the law without gospel-induced love is fruitless. Let me say that again. This is the point. The law commands, rules, without gospel-induced love is spiritually fruitless, at least in God's eyes. The way to produce spiritual fruit, the way to motivate genuine obedience is not just through external laws and rules and commands. We're going to see that there's a place for those, but that's not where it starts. It starts with genuine heart change that bears fruitful obedience. As I was thinking about this, and actually I was talking with Amanda about my sermon, she reminded me of an embarrassing story in my life that kind of uh, really kind of puts, puts flesh on this, these bones. When I was in seventh grade, I hated showering, hated it. Now, now it's not just showering, any sort of good hygiene practice, showering, bathing, those sort of cleaning, hated it. And, and my dad was horrified at this, that, that what was going on. So, so my dad did everything he could do to fix the problem. He disciplined me. He gave me rules. He grounded me. I remember at times he'd take me into the bathroom, make me get ready for my shower, and he'd sit outside the shower to make sure I go in. The problem is, you know, he can't go inside the shower with a seventh grader. So if I just wanted to get myself wet a little bit and turn the shower down and not put any soap on, he can't stop me, right? I mean, he tried to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with me. I remember one time he, he, we were going to school, and, he, and he's just, we, we sat in the garage before he opened and pulled the car out, and he said, I need, Craig, I need to have a, a talk with you. He says, I, I have a good job. I work hard. I provide for my family. There is no reason my kid should be the stinky kid. <laughs> Things like that kind of you know, stick in your mind. I still remember that conversation. But nothing would work. In fact, the more he imposed and saying, you have to do this, the more my sinful heart rebelled against that, right? Any inkling I wanted to say, okay, I'll do that? No, dad wants me to do it. I'm not going to do it. Then everything changed the first week of eighth grade. As I was riding the bus to school, a girl that I had liked from a distance decided to sit next to me on the bus. And you know what? I showered every day from then on. <laughs> Didn't miss one for a long time, just in case that she sat next to me on the bus again. See, where these commands only brought stubborn rebellion, 
this teenage crush gives all kinds of new motivation for obedience, right? That's not a perfect analogy to what Paul's saying. I I would never say that teenage Twitter patient is the same as God, gospel-given love for Christ. But where the law and the rules and the commands are unable to change hearts, they're unable to produce genuine obedience and fruit. There's a new resurrection life that causes this new love for the Savior that changes us from the inside out. So what was the problem with the law then? Why do believers need to die to the law? Well, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5, where he says, For while... For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is describing our lives in the flesh. This, this term in the flesh being used here is this, this life before we were saved. This is the life that's characterized by this, the, the wages of sin is death. As John MacArthur notes on this verse, that this is the life characterized by our old lives as unbelievers. In our flesh, we were in Adam. We lived according to our sinful passions and desires. We were fundamentally opposed to God. But notice the shocking statement about the law here. While in the flesh, while we were unsaved, the law was not the solution to our sinful passions. Instead, what did the law do? It aroused our sinful desires. Now, Paul's not blaming the law. Paul's not saying the law is bad or evil or sinful, but he's making it clear that the law was not the answer to sin. The law provoked sin. The law stimulated rebellion. The law actually compounded the problem of what sin was already there in our hearts. So instead, we needed to be released from the law if we were going to truly serve God and bear godly fruit. That's what we see in verse 6 here at the close. Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of this, in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, in contrast to verse 5, Christians, we now experience freedom from the law. We died with Christ to the law. We died with Christ to sin. We died to all that held us captive spiritually. So now we are released. That's that word for the woman in the illustration, that she's released to our new, her new husband. We are now released We're no longer under the rule of the Old Testament law, but we are released to live under the new rule of King Jesus. Do you see what Paul's saying here? See, in Romans 6, six, the whole Romans 6 is saying that, that, that we're free from the Old Testament law, so that doesn't mean that we can sin however we want to. There are some people who would look at Romans 7 and say, see, don't need commands, don't need rules don't need any sort of obligations. You don't need anything. All you need is the gospel and all that sort of commands. That's all old covenant. But that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not saying that that we then, now being free, that we can then do whatever we want. There's a purpose for our freedom. We are freed from the Old Testament law so that we can serve Jesus. Do you see that? We are free from being obligated to old, the Old Testament law so that we can now be obligated out of our love for Jesus, to follow him, to obey him, to obey the law of Christ. That's how Paul talks. John 14, 15, John talks the same way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not Old Testament law language. That's if you love me, this is how you live. Not any way you want but that love actually fulfills the, 
and, and gives a new motivation for obedience. First John 5, 3, this is our love for God, that we keep his commandments. How do you know if you really love God or not? Are, are you living in obedience? We don't keep the Ten Commandments out of some obligation to the Old Testament law. We have died to the law. Christ has fulfilled the law. But nine of those ten Old Testament uh, Ten Commandments are given to us by Christ and the disciples in the New Testament. And so we do keep those, not out of an obligation to the law, but out of a heart of love for our Savior. Dying to the law doesn't mean that we don't live in obedience. Dying to the law actually gives us the power for true obedience, genuine obedience, freedom to now live for Jesus. And look how Paul ends verse 6. Look at the result of being released from the law. So that, so that we can then live in sin? No, so that we can serve, not by the written code of the law, but by the Spirit. Paul's comparing the two, old, old, the two covenants. The old covenant, he's talking about the written code. It's an external code written on rocks, like, like external commands. But there's a new way to live. It's by the Spirit, where the Spirit comes and transforms us from the inside out. It transforms us inwardly in the heart. So the Spirit fulfills the Old Testament promise that, that Pastor Bob read this morning out of Jeremiah 31 that empowers us, the Spirit would empower us to keep his word and it, by the power of his Spirit. And that's the complete answer to our question. How do we produce genuine heart obedience? What brings freedom from our sinful and selfish attitudes and desires? What produces good fruit in our lives? The answer for sin and bearing, bearing obedient fruit is not the law, but a spirit, a new spirit-filled life that loves the Savior. So think for a moment. Let's apply this before we close. Think about think how you give advice or counsel to people in your life, to your friends, to your roommates, to, to your fellow church members. As you talk to people about their jobs, as you talk to people about their marriages, you talk to people about their spiritual lives, sometimes we give them instructions and directions and advice of how to improve things. Maybe we admonish them or even command them that they need to make these changes in their lives and their attitudes and their behaviors. And those are good things. We need to do that. We need to give advice. We need to give counsel. We need to give admonishment. At times we need to command out of love our brothers and sisters. But we need to remember that if it's just commands, if it's just admonishment, those alone aren't going to change anybody. Without the gospel, without the Holy Spirit, our world words at most can only give them some external obedience, which potentially Paul would say would even arouse their sinful passions. So yes, we need to give them advice. Yes, we need to give them counsel but we also need to speak to their hearts. We need, also need to, if they're a Christian, remind them who they are in Christ. Remind them of their love for Christ and the reason for obedience. If they're not a Christian, remind them and tell them who they can be in Christ. We can't entertain thoughts that if we just give someone the right answers, if I just give someone the right advice, then they're going to change because it's the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit that produces that change to rightly obey the right way of living. And as parents, we as much as anyone need to take, if you're a parent here, we need to take Paul's teaching to heart. We cannot be content with just external obedience. 
In fact, Paul is warning us implicitly there is a danger if we only train them, our kids, to only follow rules and commands. He's saying there's a danger of the sinful heart that will be provoked by that. Rules are good. Commands are good. Guidelines are good. But they are not the final solution. They They are external tools that are incomplete without a heart change through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. I like, I like to think about the, the, the combination of these. As I think about rules and guidelines for my kids, it's kind of like a fence that keeps them in the yard, right? I live on 426, so we're really serious about keeping in the yard. It's going to keep them in the yard. It's going to keep them where they need to be. It's going to keep them out of danger, right? It keeps them out of danger physically. It keeps them out of danger spiritually. It keeps them out of danger socially. And that's important. We need to keep them out of danger. Rules and commands, they are important. But here's the problem. Kids eventually are going to climb those fences, right? Those fences eventually turn from something being to keep them out as a challenge of where they can go next. So while those fences are working, while we're keeping them safe, with those boundaries and those rules, we need to take that opportunity to speak to their hearts. While they're inside that fence, we need to walk with them and we need to talk with them and we need to speak to their hearts and we need to know their hearts and we need to study them in their hearts and we need to speak into their hearts with the gospel so that they would be transformed by the gospel so that when they look at the fence and they look at the road beyond, there's no desire to climb that fence because out of their love for Jesus. You know, the great theologian and author John Bunyan, he, he, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He's also credited with writing a short poem that I think sums up what Paul is saying here in Romans 7. I asked Mary to put it on the screen up here. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law could never produce what it commanded in us because we didn't have the heart change that we needed to obey it. But the gospel has, it does have commands. The gospel commands us to live in a certain way as we follow and obey Christ. But it's not merely because of those commands themselves, but because the gospel also gives us wings to fly because of the power of the Holy Spirit and our love for the Savior. Before we were saved, I heard it said, and I love it, we were spiritual caterpillars. We're spiritual caterpillars. You could tell a spiritual caterpillar, you could tell a caterpillar to run, you could tell a caterpillar to fly, but it's not going to happen. But now, through our death and resurrection, as we participated in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, we're spiritual butterflies. The gospel transformed us. So that when the gospel now commands us to live in this new way following Christ and bids us fly, the gospel then gives us the wings to do so out of the power of the Holy Spirit and the love for the Savior. It provides what the law could never give so that we could live free from our sinful and selfish desires and we can live lives of obedience producing good fruit out of genuine heart obedience, out of our love and gratitude for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that we have 
in Christ, we thank you for the, free, for the freedom we have from sin and the sin that brings death. Lord, that we could live eternally with you. We thank you that we have freedom from the law. Father, what we, we confess that sometimes, Lord, that's where we live, though. We live as if we were merely obeying a list of law and a list of rules and a list of commands, that we've forgotten what the gospel has done to transform us from caterpillars into butterflies. We've forgotten to, that, 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 that what the gospel has done, that we are, we, we've died and, and are freed from the law and we are married, that we live out of this new love for the Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, that your, your gospel has given us the power of the Holy Spirit to live these lives of obedience. Father, help us to live in that light. Lord, to, not, to, to live no longer in sin, but to live in holiness because we are now free to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to give counsel and advice and to speak with good counsel and good ad- admonition, but also, Lord, with, with, with words that would speak to the heart, that would motivate heart obedience to Christ. So, Father, we pray that you'd be glorified in this, that you'd bring about the good fruit in our lives that would come out of our obedience, out of this, this new love that we have for the Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.